Uh, good morning, church. How are we doing? It's good to see you all here. Glad you're here with us. Uh, if you're a regular attendee member, welcome you back. If you're visiting with us, especially honored to have you. Uh, if you're connecting with us online, we're glad to have you as well. Our prayer for everybody is that you would encounter uh, God's presence today and hear from his voice in a way that is uh, very personal, uh, very intimate, but also helpful in that it, it leads you closer to him and leads you closer to conformity to the image of Christ, that somehow you would leave today different in a good way. That's our hope for you uh, and our prayer for you today. Uh, we are, as Ken just read, in John chapter 18. Uh, a couple things. We've got a, a lot to get into here in this kind of second half of John 18. A couple of quick announcements. Um, one, just, just wanted to like, just take a minute to stop and recognize as a church. I was thinking about, you know, yesterday was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. And while it's been 20 years, it's still not far enough back in our, in our story uh, to just be a historical event. Like, it's still impacting lives today. We have members in our church who lost loved ones in 9-11. So just continuing to pray for the thousands of families who were impacted not just by 9-11, but by everything that followed after that as well, uh, including Iraq and Afghanistan. Just, just want to take a minute to acknowledge that. Some of you may have walked in today with just a sense of heaviness about that. Um, and so I wanted to just say that up front. And then now I want to also just talk about um, just some exciting things happening this week and, and connect the two. So um, this week is the opening of our new student facility, which we're super excited about for any of our junior high and high school students, 6th through 12th. Um, but that frees this room up then for us as adults to get together uh, for ministry. So you've seen, heard the announcements for a Wednesday night service. It's going to happen once a month. And there's a, there's a lot that will take place in these services. But as I said last week, the, the primary kind of the genesis of this service is to be a blessing to you. And there will be space for prayer. There will be space for ministering to one another, space for fellowship you know, in the night. And so um, so just want to invite you to come be, be a part of that this Wednesday night. Um, and, and going back to like that heaviness, you never know what heaviness you're going to walk into church with. And if all we do is come in and sit down and sing a song or two and listen and then leave, we might miss out in the ministry God wants to do in our lives. And so uh, we've created that space on Wednesday nights for more of that to happen. So I want to make sure you're aware of that coming up this Wednesday night, 630 in this room. All of our adults, kids ministry, third through fifth, student ministry, six through 12, will all be going on same time. All right, so... Uh, John chapter 18, we're going to finish out the second half. Um, want to just kind of just quick reminder. Um, so what has happened is Jesus has now given himself over to be arrested. Um, he's essentially through the night, through the wee hours of the night, he's been drugged into these kind of mock trials or false trials or you know, kind of backwoods trial scenarios where he's taken to the house of the chief priest, actually the father-in-law of the chief priest, and then taken to the house of the chief priest. And essentially they're, what they're trying to do is quickly accuse him and convict him. And now what's happening today is the Jews are taking him now to Pilate, who is a governor uh, representative on behalf of Rome. Okay, and that's the kind of the scene where we're at. Chapter 19, which will start next week, is the crucifixion, then we have the resurrection, and then we have the, the restoration and reinstatement of Peter left to go through in this, in this gospel. Uh, I'm going to be, begin in uh, verse 28. Uh, if you've got your Bibles and want to follow along, we have Bibles under the seats around you, and this will be on the screen as well. Then they led Jesus from the house of Caiaphas to the governor's headquarters. It was early morning. They themselves did not enter the governor's headquarters so that they would not be defiled, but could eat the Passover. 
So Pilate went outside to them and said, What accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered him, If this man were not doing evil, we would not have delivered him over to you. Pilate said to them, Take him for yourselves and judge him by your own law. The Jews said to him, It is not lawful for us to put anyone to death. And this was to fulfill the words, the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. We'll stop here. It's already quite a bit here to unpack. And so as we think about the scenario of what's happening here, some interesting dialogue takes place here between the Jews and the governor Pilate. So the Jews were underneath Roman occupation. So whatever authority the Jews have, it's underneath the authority of the Romans, essentially over the governor, who's a representative of Caesar. So they have their own laws, and they have their own judicial system. So it's interesting that they say, uh, we can't sentence anyone to death. Well, actually, by their law, they can. And so really, the danger for them is to sentence someone to death by their own law, and then it not be justified by, by Roman law, which would then be murder, right? You, you're with me. So there was a lot of apprehension from the Jews to really kind of give out any kind of severe punishment. But we know from the Jewish law, they could put people to death. It was by means of stoning. Okay, and so that was the, if if they had sentenced Jesus to die, they would essentially drug him out to town, more than likely to like the rock quarry area, thrown him down in a pit, thrown rocks at him, broken bones, badgered his body until he died. But here in this discourse, instead of giving the accusation and the legal argument for why this man is guilty, they just simply say, hey, if he weren't guilty, we wouldn't have brought him to you. We can't sentence him to death. You're going to have to. Which I I find somewhat perplexing in in this opening kind of scene here that they're wanting to adhere to the strict Jewish customs. They won't even enter into the governor's house, a, a, a Gentile person's house, because then they would be considered unclean, and then that would have an impact for them on eating the Passover meal. So there's this great deal of effort that goes into maintaining this, this strict religious adherence and this facade of being pure and holy and devout. We're not even going to go into Pilate's house because it would make us unclean. And yet at the same time, they don't have a legal argument against Jesus. He hasn't done anything wrong. They know, either at least in their hearts, if not in their minds, and part of their dialogue, if we go back into the Gospel of John to like chapter 11, we know that they're past the point of trying to justify his death, and they just want him dead. Because they're scared of what will happen if if this following continues and and his following continues to grow. They're afraid they'll lose whatever little bit of ground and authority they have under Rome. And so we know what's going on inside their hearts. They know that Jesus isn't guilty. They just don't like him. They just don't want his following to continue. Because his following, right, is, is competing with their following. His teachings are overriding their teachings. He's backing up his teachings with miracles and signs, and they don't have anything but years and years and years of shame and guilt and law. And the people are following Jesus. And so here they bring him before the governor. It's interesting in uh, the Gospel of Luke in uh, chapter 23, 
listen to this. We get a little bit more detail, verses 1 and 2. It says, Then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate, and they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. And saying that he himself is Christ the King. See, they're, they're trying to build up some kind of a, a rumor mill, if you will, about Jesus so that Pilate will catch wind of it. They're not actually bringing legal accusations against Jesus. They're hoping that Pilate will pick up on this and see Jesus as a threat to Caesar. If we can just get Jesus to claim to be king in front of Pilate, done. We can wash our hands. We can feel good about ourselves. We don't have to feel guilty. We can maintain our strict religious facade. Everybody will think we're holy and clean. And then all the people of Israel see that we were right all along. See, Pilate even found Jesus guilty and put him to death. Now this is the third trial and inquiry that Jesus will face. After this, it begins his punishment phase. But John, in this verse 32, wants us to make sure we're aware of something really important. He says, this was to fulfill the word that Jesus had spoken to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So two things that John is going to do in his gospel, other gospel writers do this as well, is point out when prophecy is fulfilled. That's part of the affirmation of the Messiah, that the Messiah fulfills prophecy. And so just some some examples here. John does this in John 12, 38. John 13, 18, John 15, 25, John 17, 12. He'll do it in, we'll see it in John 19, 24, and then 19, 36. Twice in this chapter, in addition to that, he's going to point out the very words of Jesus. So if Jesus fulfills prophecies of the Messiah, that validates his identity as the Messiah. Then we got to pay attention to what he says and to the words that he says, the words that he is to say, will those come true as well? And so this idea of the kind of death that Jesus was going to die, it brings to mind two things. We know that the bones of the Messiah will not be broken. We know that from Old Testament prophecies. So if the Jews were to put him to death, now they're not thinking this way, but we know if they had put him to death by stoning, it would have broken his bones, and it wouldn't have been a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy. But even Jesus himself in John 3, in a conversation with Nicodemus, talks about how the Son of Man is going to have to be lifted up, like the serpent was lifted up in the desert. And so even Jesus describes the kind of death that he must face. And John's pointing this out once again to show us God is in control. Jesus is the one in control here. He knew this was happening before the foundations of the world. Whether you look at Old Testament prophecies or you just look at his teachings and the things he said while he was here on earth, all is being fulfilled, which puts Jesus in the driver's seat. Now, verse, we'll pick this back up again in verse 33 and really going to drive into this topic and this idea of truth, which is where we're going to land today. We'll pick this back up in uh, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this on your own accord? Or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. 
If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. And then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? Now Jesus is addressing all of Pilate's questions here. Are you a king? What have you done wrong? Why did the Jews hand you over to me? By simply talking about his kingdom, which places him as king. Now what's interesting, though, is what we learn about this kingdom. Because from the Jews' perspective, it's all about maintaining earthly kingdoms. From Pilate's perspective, it's all about earthly kingdoms. Are the Jews staying in their rightful place of submission under Roman authority? Are all the kingdoms in their place? And so Jesus, as he begins to talk about his identity as a king and his kingdom says something really remarkable. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. It's outside the boundaries of earthly kingdoms. And then he begins to drive home this idea of truth. That Jesus' kingdom is not, not only not of this world, it is a kingdom of truth. Now, it doesn't take a whole lot of effort to see the deceit of this scene. Right, The Jews are clearly trying to deceive the people to convince them Jesus is this rebellious cult leader. He's trying to convince Pilate that he's guilty of some kind of crime worthy of death. While trying to maintain appearances on the outside, there's a whole lot of deceit on the inside. And so now here Jesus is responding to all of this. My kingdom is not of this world. He even says, listen, if my kingdom were of this world, then we would operate the way you operate, Pilate. How do you operate? When your king is threatened, what do Caesar's followers do? They fight. Now, excuse Peter, because he tried to fight for a minute. But my disciples didn't fight because my kingdom's what? Not of this world, and we don't operate the way the kingdoms of this world operate. My kingdom is distinct, it's different, there's a contrast between my kingdom and the way that you're thinking about kingdoms. Now what we learn about the kingdom of God is that the kingdom of God will always, this is a big statement, it will always cut against the grain of every earthly kingdom. It'll always operate in antithesis to earthly kingdoms, the opposite of. The principles of the kingdom of God will always confront the principles of the kingdoms of earth. Now listen to me on this. This is important. Especially on a weekend, we're thinking about our nation. We're thinking about what it means to be an American. You can have a nation founded on Christian principles, but you cannot have a Christian nation. There is only one Christian nation, and that's the kingdom he's talking about here. You can have a nation that is influenced by predicated by, infused with Christian principles and doctrine and theology, but the only Christian nation is the nation that Jesus is the king of. You see how Jesus is not going to operate within their understanding of nations and kingdoms. My nation is outside of this world. It's a kingdom 
founded on, rooted in, driven by truth. I bear witness to the truth. This is the reason why I came. This is the purpose that I'm here, Pilate, on the earth. Yes, my kingdom is from another world. Now I'm in this world to do what? To bear witness to the truth. And everyone who hears my voice will be listening to and following truth. Now we're going to spend some time driving into this idea of truth now. I think this is a really, really opportune time for us as a church, not just in our, where we're at in the Bible, though that's where we're at, but also in the world that we're living in right now, to begin talking about and thinking about this idea of truth. As a Christ follower, you need to be equipped, as a citizen of Jesus' kingdom, you need to be equipped with understanding truth. In a world where the idea and the concept of absolute truth not only is non-existent, if you attempt to perpetuate it or talk about it or just believe that there is an idea of an absolute truth, you will be confronted with a vicious response. So what do we mean when we talk about truth? What is absolute truth? So let me kind of break down the ideas and the concepts of truth for just a moment. So first of all, when you think about absolute truth, you're in, from a worldly perspective, you're talking about objective truth. Truth that's not subject to anything. It's always, if it's true, it's always true. Okay? It's true, it's always true. It's absolutely true. From a Christian perspective, I want you to think about two things. This, this is where our doctrine exists. Absolutely true. Okay? So we, we believe in a triune God. Father, Son, Spirit. One God, three persons. If it is true today, it was true yesterday and it'll be true tomorrow. Absolutely true. There's only one way you can get into heaven, by faith, faith through grace, trusting in what Jesus has done for you in his death, burial, and resurrection, and by your faith in him, you will be forgiven and saved and adopted into God's kingdom. That's either true or it's not true, right? So absolute truth doctrine, but we also have to understand absolute truth as it plays out in our everyday lives. We all have a narrative unfolding. And there are absolute truths about you and absolute truths about your life and absolute truths about your experiences in life. So when we talk about absolute objective truth, we're both talking about our doctrine, but we're also talking about the true narrative, <laughs> which is a hard thing to nail down these days, isn't it? What's, what's true? What's trustworthy? I got two opposing views on a number of topics and they're all claiming to be rooted in truth or science or valid data and they both can't be absolutely true. When you think about subjective truth, we have the idea of uh, anecdotal truth, which is truth based on experience. You hear this a lot with COVID. And my wife was sending me some different posts this last week from two people we love and respect and their experiences were 180 degrees different with COVID and vaccines and she's like whoa what do we do here I'm like they they're both convincingly true and in that person's experience it seems like their experience was true to them it's anecdotal truth okay now, the problem is, is, is that anecdotal truth is not necessarily not true. It just can't be spread out to the whole tr narrative and applied to everything. Are you with me? 
So you have anecdotal truth, you have normative truth, which is where a group of people get together and they make something normative and they generally agree this is true. It, you know, the view of the world before we realized that the, the earth was round. There was this normative truth that the world was flat. There wasn't scientific data really per se that backed it up, at least not reliable scientific data, but it, it was normative, meaning that the, the people as a whole just accepted it and so it became a truth that the culture accepted or the people accepted you have normative truth. Then you have this idea of complex truth when you mix all that together and you muddy the water and you have to pull it all apart. Now, I'm bringing that up because it's important for you to think about that. You as an individual person can have a true experience that's true for you, but that does not necessarily mean it would be true for everybody. Well, you take a sip of alcohol and from the first moment you drink, you're addicted. That may be your experience. That doesn't make it true for everybody. So you can't say everybody who does this, who sips this, will automatically be addicted. Like, no, that's your experience. But what we're after today is this idea of absolute or objective truth. Let's walk through some things together. So first of all, let's talk a little bit more about the truth in our culture today. So I've got a quote here from... um, a guy who used to be a professing Christian singer-songwriter who is now somewhere in either universalism or atheism, I don't know. It's a guy by the name of Derek Webb. And back whenever he proclaimed to be a Christian, he was writing songs for the band Cabin's Call. He, was, he wrote a song about truth, and here are some words about the idea of truth from his perspective. He says, the truth is never sexy, so it's not an easy sell. You can dress her like the culture, but she'll shock them just as well. Because she, being truth, doesn't need an apology for being who she is, and she doesn't need your help in making enemies. And those were his observations about the idea of absolute truth. That truth will always cut against the grain of any culture. It will never be attractive so we should be cautious when we're being attracted to a, something we're, that's, that, that claims to be true, but it's appealing. It's, if it's not confronting you, there's a good chance it's not true. If it's not challenging you in some way, there's a good chance that you are chasing after something that's not absolutely true. What's interesting is that was written in the late 90s, mid to late 90s. And so what we saw in the 20th century in American culture, this shift from you know, ideas and principles founded on objective truth to more of what we would call relativism. Things are relative, more anecdotal, more, ah, what's true for me may not be true for you, and that's, that does apply to certain scenarios, but it doesn't apply to everything. Like, you may be allergic to peanuts. It doesn't mean I'm allergic to peanuts, right? But, but when we take that same principle, we apply it to everything, including God and theology and the universe, then what's true for you doesn't have to be true for me. We get to get into, we get into some really ambiguous waters, don't we? But what's now kind of shifted over the last 20 years is, is relativism has moved into what I'm going to call like the fake news era, right? Where it's no longer you believe what you want to believe, I believe what I want to believe, but now it's like I get to make up a narrative, and if you don't believe it, I'm justified in being vicious towards you. That's the era we live in right now. I just described your Facebook feed this last week, right? Unless you've blocked all those people, but that's the like that's what's in the room right now in our country. That's, the, that's what's kind of the smell in the air, if you will. 
And then you combine that with activism. So if I can make up a narrative and then apply activism to it, and if you're not an activist now for my narrative, you see where this is going? Now you are fill in the blank. Worthless, bigoted, prejudice. Just right, and, and it's justified. And then what else is interesting about this is the cult, the church is expected you, us, to have a voice in this activism. And our voice is welcomed as long as we're supporting the narrative. And I'm not not speaking about any specific topic right now. So if you think, I wonder if he's talking about, I'm talking about all the topics, all of them. Like this principle applies. The church is welcome to have a voice as long as it's propping up the narrative with that voice. But the second that the church tries to infuse logic or theology into the conversation, boom, stalemate. We knew it. Out of the conversation. No, we're just trying to like reason. We're just trying to think logically about the scenario and the situation. We haven't even got to theology yet. And we're shut down. Like that's a, that's a major shift in our American culture that's taken place over about 120 years, maybe 140 years. And some of us don't even realize that. We just know we're frustrated. We don't know why. Try to have conversations, and then you're scared to have conversations. You don't know why. It's, this is why. Think about truth in the church today. We've got this pressure from the outside that I just described, but we also have turmoil from within. There have been movements within the church over the last 120, 140 years moving away from this idea of absolute truth to a more liberal view or a more relative view of truth itself. And most of the church was asleep while this was happening. Several different movements that have come and gone since the turn of like the 20th century to the turn of the 21st century. One of those was was early on in the 1900s, late 1800s, when when the church began to, some of the church began to let go of this idea of inerrancy of scripture. Just one little detail about the belief and the approach to the Bible, if we can remove inerrancy, meaning it doesn't have error, whoo, and we can make this thing say whatever we want it to say. And then what happens is we say, well, it's got to be interpreted within your cultural context. Culture matters. It's important to understand the context of we just used it, right? What's going on with the Romans? What's going on with the Jews to understand what's happening with Jesus? But that doesn't change the meaning for us. And this question that came up, and this was true when I first was being discipled in the faith, read the Bible, and then you ask the question, what does it mean to you? That's such a dangerous question, church. It sounds so innocent, doesn't it? It sounds so simple. Like, what's wrong with that question? The Bible has meaning before I worry or even ask the question, what is it saying to me? The Bible has a voice and it says something. So when I ask the question, what is it saying to me? I'm actually asking, what is it saying to us? Because if it's just, what is it saying to me? Now I'm in relativism, right? Because of my experience in my life, this is what the verse is saying. Now, you can read the same verse over and over again and the meaning just pours out, right? And you'll see more and more over time and more that you read and you're like, well, I didn't see this the first time. I'm not saying that that doesn't happen. What I'm saying though is if Ken Forsyth, one of our elders, reads a verse of scripture and he he hears from the Holy Spirit, he understands from the word what God is saying to him, he's saying it to me too and vice versa. 
The Bible has a voice. God has a voice. He speaks through his word, and it is inerrant. Now, there have been a lot of other movements, the Jesus movement and the way that impacted our worship to where our worship just became these love jingles for a while. It's like, you could sing it to Jesus or my girlfriend, and it just kind of has the same meaning. There wasn't a lot of theological depth to it. Then we had the seeker-friendly movement where all the focus of the church was every decision we make is going to be based on the person who doesn't believe in Jesus. Now that sounds loving, but why do we let the unbeliever then dictate and control the worship of those who do believe? Seeker-friendly movement came and fortunately for the most part has gone. So we've had these liberal movements from within that have kind of waged war against this idea of absolute truth. And as a Christ follower, it's important that you understand that. Jesus is a king. His kingdom is not of this world. And it is a kingdom of truth. And the truth of Jesus' kingdom that's true today was true 2,000 years ago. It was true before the foundations of the world. And it will be true when he returns. Now, I know that is not popular in the world you're interacting within. It probably even makes you nervous to think about, if I take that approach at work, I'm going to be criticized or humiliated. Or I, I know that, but it doesn't change the truth. Here, here's a really important question I want us to think about. And I want you to think about it because I believe it's true for you and me, and it has always been true since the fall. Why, as human beings, are we so adverse to truth? I'm going to give you some biblical examples of people who were adverse to what is true, but then I ultimately want you to think about your own life and your own readiness to embrace truth. So go back to the garden, Genesis 3. Dialogue uh, that takes place between Eve and the serpent. I'm going to read a few verses here. I want you to listen for the, the call and the invitation to untruth from the serpent to Eve. Verse 4, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Why did he say that? Well, what did God say in the last chapter? Adam, if you eat from this tree, you will what? You'll die. Now the serpent is saying the opposite of that. They both can't be true. And then look at what happens next. The serpent adds to that. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Eve, God's a liar. You won't die. And if you'll just eat this fruit, you'll be able to, you'll know, you'll, it'll validate that God is a, a liar and you'll be like him. This was the first attack on God's creation from Satan himself was to what? To c- convince Eve to believe a lie. Verse 11, same chapter. He said, this is God now speaking, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And this is representative of Adam and Eve are already beginning to build their own narrative out here. The shame and the guilt of believing the lie has caused them to see that they're both naked and now they don't trust anything. And so they're, they want to cover up. They want to hide from God. They're beginning to build out their own narrative here. 
And God's like, who told you this lie? Now, fast forward. Jesus is on the scene in John chapter 8. He's confronting the very guys who just arrested him and turned him over to Pilate. Listen to Jesus' confrontation in John 8 with these Jewish leaders. Verse 31, Jesus said to the Jews, who, excuse me, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, uh, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The truth doesn't shackle you, it sets you free. So that conversation continues. Verse 43, why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my words. You're adverse to things that are true. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the Not only that, because there is no truth in him, when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. You see what Jesus is saying about not just Satan, but the kingdoms of earth? They operate in untruth. Satan himself only speaks untruth because he speaks out of his own character. And he's saying to a group of people, here's why you don't want to listen to me, because I'm telling you what's true. It's not giving you the warm fuzzies on the inside. It's not patting you on the back, saying, hey, it's okay. You don't need to feel guilty. The words that I'm saying aren't coming to you and tucking you in at night and putting your head on the pillow and singing you to sleep. The words that I'm saying to you are cutting to your heart, and you don't like that. The same way Eve didn't like it, the same way Adam didn't like it, the same way every generation of man since then has been adverse to truth. Because here's the thing, listen listen to this. I'm going to read it because this is the way I wrote it. If I, here's why I think I am adverse and why you are adverse. If I accept an absolute truth about God and the world he created, then I also have to accept that there is an absolute truth about me. This is what I think is at the core of it. And because I'm broken and I carry around in me the brokenness of my experience on earth, I don't want to deal with the pain and the shame of being exposed. So I say I love the truth, but functionally I avoid the truth because it confronts me. Even though it's liberating, it confronts me. And I avoid the truth that would set me free. And here it is. I am broken, and only Jesus can meet me in my brokenness and heal me. But for that statement to be embraced as true, I have to embrace the part that says I'm broken. Are you with me? And that's the part we like to just jump over in Christianity. Right? I'm a sinner. I need Jesus in my life. Got that over with. Now let's move on. No, no, no. Let's talk about the brokenness for a minute. It's real. It's true. Right? We can't just dismiss it with cheap cliches and Jesus died for the sins of the world and I'm a sinner and I got saved. Ooh, let's move on. Whoa, that was close. You almost saw me. <laughs> right? You almost saw my sin. Woo! I'm so glad I just jumped right over that. And Jesus is like, wow, man, if the gospel is true, you got to believe all of it. You're broken. I'm broken. 
and I don't accept the absolute truths about God, because first of all, I don't want to believe the absolute truths about myself. The second layer of that is then, now I'm subject to the absolute truths about what I got to deal with, what I got to do with myself. And so I think in our sin nature, we are adverse to truth for these reasons. But here's the reality. Listen, the universe can't exist without absolute truths. The earth is either flat or round. And for the solar system to work, we need it to be round. I had a good friend about a month ago. Uh, we were eating dinner for my birthday, and we were talking about just kind of dreaming on, like, vacations we would go to. And I was like, hey, I got this friend who has this, this Airbnb down in Mexico. And he said, hey, anytime you and your friends want to go, you can go. And I was telling him, he goes, he goes, well, I know a pilot who can take us there. He's a good friend. He'll do it for cheap. Has his own plan. We were, you, know, just, you know how you just, bring, just daydreaming. He goes, yeah, but here's the only problem. He still believes the world is flat. And I'm like, okay. (laughs) I'm not getting in an airplane with a pilot who believes that the world is still flat. Why? Because the world's not flat. And that's absolutely true. How do you know? Go to the the moon and turn around and look. Oh, but that was a Hollywood studio. Whatever. Anyway. The universe can't exist without absolute truths, okay? And without absolute truths, you can't actually know who God is. The only option you have is to make him up in your mind. Do you want to worship a God you've made up? Do you want to entrust your life, your soul, your eternity to fiction? Without absolute truths, you can't know who God is. Here's a harder one. Without absolute truths, there is no you. If there is no absolute truth out there, then then you don't exist. And not only can you not get to know God, you can't even get to know yourself. Without absolute truths, we don't have access to God. Without absolute truth, we don't have access even to ourselves and our own stories. You don't know who you are without absolute truth. Without absolute truth, your view of yourself, and this is why we struggle with self-identity. It's rooted in lies. You have to have absolute truth to know who you are. Otherwise, you're just a dream in somebody's mind. But listen to this even more than that. Without absolute truth, you don't have access to peace, joy, and security. Now, I picked those three words because I want you to think about them as a litmus test. If you are struggling right now in your life to truly find joy, it's because there is an untruth in your life. I'm not saying you're not a Christian, but I am saying there's the potential, a very likely potential, that you have bought into something that's a lie. And it's killing your joy. It's keeping you from joy. Peace. It's getting harder and harder to have peace in the world we live in. If you're struggling to find peace, there's a really high probability that you've bought into a lie somewhere along the way. And you're living in untruth. I don't know what it is, but I'm just, this is a litmus test. And let's do the same thing with security. Whether that's insecurity, like the way you feel about yourself, or just security in the world you live in. If your life is drenched in fear, Fear of what others think about you. Fear about what's going to happen to you if you go to the, to the grocery store. If your life is drenched in fear, I'm telling you, 
There is an untruth embedded in your mind and your heart. And I think that's a pretty good litmus test for us all to think about this morning. Without absolute truth, there is no security. All of life is a gamble. No, we should be scared if there's no absolute truth. Joy. Listen, emotions come and go, experiences come and go, but the joy we're talking about is a joy you can have even when things are not going your way. You can't have that without absolute truth. Because everything's relative, your joy is going to be dependent upon everything going your way. Again, it's a roll the dice. Security, joy, peace. Roll the dice. And here's the cool thing about the Bible. Even the rolls of the dice are governed by a sovereign God. I wouldn't plan on saying that, but fast forward to Acts chapter 1. How do they replace Judas? They draw lots. They roll the dice. And it was God's sovereign hand over that whole process. You either believe that or you don't. Now let's end here with just a couple of questions to think about. What do you do when you encounter something in the Bible that presents a truth that contradicts the culture you live in? What do you do with that? The world is telling you something to believe. And then you're reading your Bible and you're like, whoa, those don't line up. Okay, if you're reading your Bible, that's going to happen. Okay, what do you do with that? If you don't know the answer to that, like press in. Like talk to one of our pastors, press into your community group leader. Grab one of our elders and say, what do I do? I don't know what to do. And the second question is this. On a more personal level, what should we do? What should you do in a situation where you find a conflict between the truth of scripture and your own opinions and desires let's just take that first question let's bring it home because the bible is not only going to contradict the philosophies and teachings of the world that you live in the bible according to the bible is also going to contradict your own personal opinions thoughts and desires just case in point read it Every character in here was confronted with truth and had to figure out what to do with it. And so I'm just asking you to think about what you do when you encounter something that the Bible claims to be absolutely true, but it conflicts with your own opinions. What do you do with that? And I'll end with this. Is Jesus a king? He is. And his kingdom is not of this world. It is a kingdom of truth. Let's pray together. Um, Father, we thank you for this really challenging and vivid reminder. God, not just of what's going on in this room, but what's going on in the world around us. Really what we've talked about today, God describes the human experience since Genesis chapter 3. And so God, we want to be honest about the reality that every person in this room faces the same struggle. It's not enough for us to say that we love truth. It's not enough for us to say that we believe that there is an absolute truth. Father, functionally, you're calling us to be citizens of a kingdom of truth, to live out truth principles on a daily basis, to live by truth, to submit our hearts to the truth. Father, when we see something in the scripture that's different, it conflicts with, it contrasts itself with what we're seeing in the world 
that we would recognize that we're not of this world. We're not citizens of this world. We're citizens of a kingdom that is not of this world. And that, Father, we would submit ourselves to your kingdom, your truths. But God, that's harder to do whenever it's inside of us. It's harder to do when there's a desire or an opinion or a thought or an idea in our own minds and then we discover that what we previously thought is not true. And so, Father, today you're not only showing us that there is truth, but you're calling us to willingly and joyfully submit ourselves to truth. Truth that comes from your word, a word that comes from you. That what you speak is true. So, Father, now as we get ready to respond, there will be people here, God, who I know need to speak with somebody, who need prayer. So we're going to open up a time to do that. Father, this conversation may have brought up more questions than it did answers. And so, so God, our elders are going to be out in the commons ready to have those conversations. And Father, our worship team is here to lead us in a time of worship in truth. And so, God, we're going to stand and we're going to sing and we're going to worship the God of truth today. So, Father, make yourself known, make yourself big in our time today. We pray this in the name above all names, in the name of Jesus. Amen.